Well, good evening and welcome. My name is John Pink. Um, I'm one of the leaders here. Great to welcome you, whether you're joining us um, online or whether you're um, here in the room. It's fantastic to have you with us. Let me say a particular welcome. If you're new, if this is your first time at Globe Church, um, well done for getting here. And I know it's a bit odd, but we're working on it. And actually, we are convinced as a church that God has things He wants to teach us and that there's good things that we can still enjoy, even though there's lots of things that we can't. So if you're new in London, welcome. Um, if you're new at Globe, welcome. We are so thrilled to see you. And there's lots of things we love to do at Globe Church, and one of the things we love to do is to get God's Word open and to read it and to think about it and to ask that God, by His Spirit, would teach us. So we're going to do that together now. Um, and there's no restriction on God's Word. In fact, there's a great verse in the Bible that says God's Word is not changed. God's Word is not marked. God's Word does not have to be restricted. God's Word can be listened to and preached. So we're going to do that together now. I'd like you to turn, um, I know you probably haven't got Bibles. If you've got a Bible or a phone, turn to John 7. But the words are also going to be um, on the screen so you can follow along. We're, we're in the middle of um, John's Gospel. Our pattern is just to take a book of the Bible and just to work our way through it week by week. And we've got to John uh, chapter 7. And I'm going to start reading at verse 14, but let's keep remembering when John writes his Gospel, he wants us to know about Jesus. And he doesn't just want us to know about him, he wants us to see that Jesus is so worthy and valuable and precious that we would put all of our trust in him. And so we're going to pick up um, from John chapter 7, verse 14. And I feel like I'm ringing a little bit. Can you turn down a little bit? Um, John 7, verse 14 says this. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple court and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who speaks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There's nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You're demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who's trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle and you are all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead, judge correctly. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple court, cried out, 
Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd believed in him. They said, When the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I'm with you for only a short time, and then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live, scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, You will look for me, but you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. Well, we're going to stop there. We'll pick it up next week on the last and greatest day of the feast. Um, but for today, we're going to focus on what I think is tempting to get our feet into. So we're going to bow our heads and pray. We're going to ask that God help us by His Spirit. This is not an intellectual exercise. This is a spiritual exercise where we want God to teach us as we listen to His Word. So let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, please, please, this afternoon, in all the weirdness of meeting and in the, the warmth of this summer's afternoon, we ask, Father, please, that you would strike us with the reality of Jesus, that these words would live to us, that by your Spirit, you would do a work in our hearts. Father, please, would you be at work, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're picking up the story. I'm trying to set the scene, okay? Let me just become picture this scene. We're in Jerusalem. It's the capital city of, um, of Israel. It's the, it's the place where the temple is. It's the place where everyone comes to worship God. And we're at, in Jerusalem in a festival. The festival of tabernacles. It's a time of great celebration, a time of great joy, when people would gather from all over the place. They'd come to Jerusalem for this week-long celebration. It would be noisy, and it would be bustling, and it would be busy, and there'd be no social distancing, and people would be bumping into one another. And interestingly, as part of the celebration, they'd be building tents that they live in for the week. They live in these outdoor shelters to remember the time when God rescued them out of slavery. And it was a time of celebrating all that God had done for them. It was a time of great, great joy. And so there's lots of noise going on in Jerusalem. And then it's told in verse 14, about halfway through this feast, Jesus went to the temple court and began to teach. Now, this is a religious celebration, right? There would have been loads of teaching going on. Loads of people would have been speaking and eminent scholars and great preachers and fantastic religious leaders, the rabbis, the best of the best would be in Jerusalem teaching. You could hear the best teaching in the whole world there in Jerusalem that week. And then, a 
30-year-old, early 30s, carpenter's son, stands up in a temple court, and he begins to teach. And the impact of his teaching is electric. Remember, there are some of the best teachers, the wisest scholars in Jerusalem at that moment, and yet it's when this young carpenter's boy starts to teach that the people can see something going Jesus is not some sidestep who gets ignored at a fringe event while everyone goes to find their favorite preacher. This Jesus, when he stands up, people listen. I want to think why. Why is it that his word carries such weight and endures so lastingly? Do you know the name of any other preacher who preached at that feast? Do you know the name of any of the other religious leaders, any of the other scholars? Do you know any of their names? No. Only this one. What is it? What's it with him? Why is the teaching and the words of Jesus so spectacularly powerful? That's what we need to get to grips with. And the Jews can say, look at verse 15. It says in verse 15, the Jews there were amazed when they listened to Jesus. They marveled. They're like, whoa, who's that? Can you not imagine them? You know, this Jesus gets up to preach, they're probably thinking, oh man, this is going to be a bit embarrassing. It's one of those moments of experts when someone who you think is going to be absolutely awful opens their mouth and they're incredible. It's better than that. That is better. This is a moment when suddenly everyone stops and listens. But they marvel at him. But their marveling is not entirely positive. Did you, did you hear what they said? Yeah, they're amazed by him because they think, well, who is this? But their question is, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Who is this bloke? He's not gone to the best rabbi school. He's not come from a great family. We don't know who he is. Who does he think he is? And they're beginning to question what right does this man have to stand up and to speak? Who gave him a platform to speak? To be honest, he's a carpenter's son. He should be building the platform, not standing on the platform and speaking. Jesus, you're a little bit out of place. Did you see? What right does Jesus have to speak? The same question is, why do his words still last today and have that enduring power? We've got to get to grips with what it is with the teaching of this man. What is it? Jesus responds in verse 16, with the central claim that we're going to explore this afternoon. Jesus is very, very clear. And yet this claim, if it is true, is completely earth-shattering. Listen to what he says. Verse 16 says, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. 
you're familiar with Jesus, if you know some of this stuff, don't let that rob you of what a staggering thing it is that Jesus is claiming. This is not my own teaching that you're hearing. It comes from the one who sent me. So we could sum it up like this. The words of Jesus come from God. That's what he's claiming. Now, if you think about how people claim authority today, this is very different. What are the sort of things that people appeal to for authority in our world? I think there are three broad categories. These are sorts of things that give people authority to speak in our world. One is tradition. You know, so uh, the sort of person who's got a long history and they can speak because they've got a long history. They say, well, you know, you say, um, he told, you know, he gives you the answer to tell me how to make a chili. And you say, well, my dad made it this way and his mum made it this way and their great granny made it this way. And that came all the way from Italy. And they're claiming authority derived from the history that they're coming from, right? A lot of that happens in our culture, and that would have been very much how the Jews would have understood authority. You claim your authority because, well, I'm teaching what the rabbi taught, this rabbi teaches, and he teaches what this rabbi teaches, and it's a derived authority that comes from a tradition that is passed down. This is why you have to put footnotes if you're doing um, any academic essays. You've got to put footnotes. You've got to quote the sources. You've got to say, when someone says, well, why are you making that claim? Well, because Professor Blobby said that, and, and he's just quoting this person, and you trace it back to show where it came from. And tradition has a lot of authority. I actually think in our culture that is losing its authority. We're a culture that's beginning to doubt history, doubt tradition, doubt our past, and actually beginning to chuck that off as a good sign of authority. So that's another issue. But some people would say, no, authority comes from experience. That's why you can prove that you are experiencing something, you have the right to speak about it. In particular, if you're successful. This is why celebrities get asked their opinion on things that they know nothing about. It's hilarious. You know, you get asked. Just because someone is a famous musician, they get asked about coronavirus. They haven't got a clue. They don't know any more than I do. But they get asked because they seem to be successful. There was a great example of this um, at the start of the outbreak. Jurgen Klopp, who's the uh, Liverpool football manager, was asked in an interview, you know, what's your take on coronavirus and things? And he said, I don't know. He said, why do you ask famous people? I wear a baseball cap and a dodgy beard. Ask people who know. And he, thought, he really called it out. He said, just because I'm famous, you ask me think I know stuff. Because some of our, the, the, the voices that we listen to, the authorities that we speak, are those that we perceive to be successful. People who've made it in life. Let's listen to them. Bill Gates, yeah, he's got authority because he obviously knows some stuff because he seems to be doing all right for himself. So tradition, experience, all those reasons. That is, you want to find the experts. You want to find the people who really know their stuff. Let's listen to them. The people who've got letters after their names, who've got degrees. You may have seen the um, 
about 10 years ago, I think now. But this fantastic interview that the BBC did um, with a guy who turned up, a guy called Guy Goma, who turned up for a job interview um, and was mistaken for an expert in, in digital music and was mic'd up and was put on, on the news with this newsreader who basically was in asking him his opinion on the future of digital music. It's, it's absolutely awesome. It's a great, great little video. And he did a great job, actually, of speaking and of predicting the future <laughs> to work in, kind of like, in the maintenance department, I think it was. But it's just so funny. But we perceive that if someone has an, ex- an expertise, then we say, well, they have authority to speak. Now, what am I saying all that? I-, I want you to see that what Jesus is claiming is a very different authority to anything else that we see in our world. See, Jesus does not claim his authority is derived from other human beings. He doesn't claim a great tradition. He doesn't say, well, look at my heritage. Nor does he say, look at my great success. Look how awesome I am. I must be able to speak because I'm so awesome. Nor does he say, look at my expertise. Instead, he says, my authority comes directly from God. My words come from God. That is a staggering claim. And a claim that we have to engage with. Because if that is true, listen to this. If that is true, that claim to authority trumps every other claim to authority that any human being will ever make. It doesn't matter the history that people have. It doesn't matter the experience and success that people have had. It doesn't matter the degrees and the intelligence that people have. If Jesus speaks from God, then he wins. His word must carry greater influence and authority and power than any other word. This is why this claim matters. Now, at this point, you might not be persuaded that that is the case. You might not be persuaded that Jesus' words are really all right. But all I want to do now is to show you what the Bible's claiming is true about the words of Jesus. And it means when there's a clash of authority, it is the words of Jesus that we listen to. Okay, but hang on. How does the teaching of Jesus? So the words of Jesus come from God. That's the big claim. But they come from God. Let's look at verse 16 again. My teaching is not my own, Jesus says. It's not derived from my success, from my expertise. It comes from the one who sent me. How is it that the words of Jesus can come from God if it's because Jesus comes from God? Okay, now he grants the stakes up slightly more. No longer is he claiming this to have some divine revelation. Many religious leaders have claimed that. Many who've written religious books have claimed that. Jesus is claiming something more. So let's build our frame a little bit more. Get this clear. The words of Jesus come from God because Jesus comes from God. Jesus claims that God has sent him. Now, immediately, that, that is, um, gets your mind buzzing, doesn't it? I mean, imagine if I said to you today that I was born, I came into this world because I was sent here. That's, 
points to the top of Thomas, right? At the very least, that points to the pre-existence of Jesus. That is, before he was born, he must have existed in order to be sent. It seems to point that way, right? He's actually going to, spoiler alert, in chapter 8, he's actually going to directly claim that truth. When he says, before Abraham was, I am. So that's in a few weeks' time. But here at least it's pointing to the fact that Jesus pre-existed his life on earth. Here is why his words carry such power, because he is the pre-existent, eternal Son of God, the one who has no beginning. The one who was forever with God his Father. So it points us to the pre-existence of this man Jesus. These points are so good, aren't they? We get such a shriveled up little view of Jesus. But even some religious preacher is just pre-existent. That's not true of anyone else. Which points to the fact he's not only the pre-existent one, he's also the unique one. There is no one else who can claim that. There's no other being, human being who's ever lived who said, oh, before um, I was born, I was doing this. No, that's, that's not right. Yes, okay, fine. Before I was born, I was kicking around in my mummy's tummy. Oh, before I could see, a thousand years before I was born, this is what I was doing. That's what Jesus is claiming. I speak the word of God because I come from God. You see, here he is in the midst of this feast of tabernacles. He looks like another ordinary hunter at the feast. He looks like another man roaming the streets, kind of celebrating all that God has done. And yet, here's the thing. He is God. He is God come down to earth. The very one that they're celebrating now is at their feast. If they don't see it. He's kind of magic. This is why the words of Jesus on that day had such power. This is why you know his words, but you don't know Rabbi X's words, because he's not the Son of God, but he is. So here is Jesus, the pre-existent, unique one, who is perfectly united with his Father. There's a unity when he says, it comes from the one who sent me. So the Bible is teaching that you have God the Father and Jesus the Son. This is back in Rome, um, in John chapter 5. We did a whole term on this uh, last year called the Father and Son. Thanks for Chris. Um, but there's this extraordinary relationship between God the Father and Jesus, God the Son, pre-existent, eternal, united, one. And then the Father sends the Son to speak the word. And Jesus makes exactly the same claim. And in verse 28, we are going to move faster, by the way, still in one verse, but we're going to go faster. Verse 28. Listen to the claim again. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, you know where I'm from. I'm not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I'm from him and he sent me. You see, Jesus being very clear. This is true. I am sent by 
God. God is my Father, and He sent me, and I come on His authority. Now, sometimes this is quite odd, because it's not the answer we might have expected Jesus to give. When they say, where did you get this teaching from? He could have said, well, on God. But instead, he deflects the glory from himself, to his Father, because that's what Jesus is like. He's not a glory seeker. He is a glory bringer to his Father. And so he comes into this world, and actually the beauty of the God that we're shown in John's Gospel is not some dictator, not some glory, hungry maniac, but instead a father and son who love one another perfectly and who have a plan to save this world. And so the father sends the son, and the son gives glory to the father, and that's why you trust the world. So here are words that are not based on any human authority. They're not based on tradition, they're not based on experience, they're not based on reason, they're based on God. They come from God. Now, I've laid that, you might have noticed. But I want us to be in no doubt about what we're dealing with when we come to Jesus. Now, what we're going to do now is, having got that central claim, I now have to think, well, what does that mean we should do with that claim? What do we do with that claim? Do we, you know, do we all just walk out and go, no, no. What do you suppose to do? How do you know it's true? What do you do with it? Well, that, we're going to see two things now that we can do with it. We're going to read verse um, 17 again. I, I think verse 17 is remarkable and slightly complicated, but if we work at it, I think we're going to see something really very, very surprising about the words of Jesus. Listen to verse 17 again. So Jesus has just made his claim. My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Verse 17. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Yeah? Jesus says, if you want to know whether I really come from God or not, then you need to be someone who chooses to do the will of God. And then you will know. And you might say, hang on a second. That sounds a bit like circular. Yeah. Because what other authority is Jesus going to point to to validate his word when he has already claimed the highest authority as the source? He will not point to a human and go, listen, I come from God, and if you don't believe me, ask Jeff. He'll tell you. He knows everything about this. Because suddenly Jeff has become the supreme authority of the universe. Bad. We don't want Jeff in charge. I don't even know Jeff. There's not any likeness to any uh, characters entirely. No doubt. So the point is, there is no authority that Jesus can point to other than to say, come try. Jesus says, if you're someone who is willing to do the will of God, just discover the truth. I think the first thing that we're supposed to do with this claim that Jesus' words come from God, the first thing we're supposed to do with it is adopt a right heart attitude. 
I actually think what Jesus is saying in verse 17 shows us an incredible understanding of how human beings work. You see, what Jesus is talking about is he's talking about our desire, our choosing, our, our will, the thing that we want. And we can often get confused because what Jesus says here is that willing comes before knowing. We think it's the other way around. We think I've got to know stuff, and once I know stuff, then I'll choose the right thing. But Jesus has not actually the way that you work. This has been um, powerfully illustrated in different ways, but one author, um, Dr. Duncan Pike, um, illustrated this using the idea of an elephant and a rider. Have you come across this illustration yet? So it's a really powerful illustration. He talks about the, um, he's talking about our desires and our, our understanding. And so how do you know what, what you're going to do? Often we think, well, I'll, I'll find out what's true and then I'll do whatever's true. I'll desire whatever's true. Actually, the argument is no, it doesn't work like that. Actually, what I feel, what I want, what I instinctively want is the way I'll go, and I will then believe what is true on the basis of what I feel. So the elephant and the rider is that the elephant, the rider is the intellect, the, the rider is the kind of rational, reasonable, logical part of you. The part of his information and, and is able to process it rationally. The elephant is everything else. It's your emotions, it's your desires, it's your instincts. And the problem is, if we simply talk to the rider and try to persuade the rider, that isn't how we make our decisions. The elephant, that is our emotions and our desires, has far more control over us than we like to imagine. So often the decisions that we make are not based on rational arguments, they are based on a gut instinct. And therefore what Jesus is saying is, get your elephant in order. Speak to, direct your desire, your will, your choosing towards God. Then you'll discover the truth. Look, the, the problem is that by nature our desires are set against us. By nature I find myself doing things that I know God says I shouldn't do. I mean, to be honest, my desires are set against often what I, my mind says is right and wrong. But even if you're not a Christian sitting in this room, have you never found yourself doing something that you think you shouldn't be doing? Why do you do that? Because the elephant's stronger than the little man on top. Because often the little man on top goes, no, 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 don't do that. The elephant says, shut up. And stomping his way through. That's how we are. Have you ever wondered why that happens? Does that not seem strange to you? Could it be because we were created by God who we turned our back on and our desires have gone haywire? We desire things that are just not right. 
We desire stuff that's not good for us, that's not healthy for us. We desire stuff that is selfish and that's damage. And Jesus is saying, our problem is the reason that we don't understand the authority of his word and we don't love his word is not because mentally we don't understand it, it's because we don't really desire it. We don't want it. And Jesus says if you don't want God's word, if you don't want God, you will never want Jesus. You'll never understand him. So much of our problem with God is not head of doctrine at all, it's a heart of doctrine. We just don't want him. And so of course we don't believe him. Back in John chapter 3, Jesus says, Men love darkness because their deeds are evil. And we find ourselves clashing with the authority of Jesus because we choose to do our own way. And therefore, if we are going to really understand who Jesus is, we have to adopt the far attitude that comes to in humility and says, Jesus, I'm sorry, my desires are all over the place, but Jesus, please would you direct my desires towards you? Please would you help me to love you? Help me to choose to do God's will. And as you do that, you will find him to be who he claims to be. There's a challenge for that. Can you try that? Change my heart. Help me to want what you want. And as you want what he wants, you discover who he truly is. I think that's what he's saying. And in particular, verse 18 and 19, I feel like we're never going to get there, but we're, we're trying. Particularly in verses 18 and 19, he talks about specifics that we're seeking of glory. How often we seek glory for ourselves. Here is Jesus, who says he comes as one who seeks the glory of the one who sent him. Jesus hasn't come to gain glory for himself. He's come to deflect glory to God. That's how you can trust that he's true. Because so often my elephant is obsessed with my own glory. My elephant is obsessed with being liked and being popular. And so I'll go that way. And if we're going that way, we'll never understand Jesus. We'll always write him off as some weirdo who ends up dead on a cross. When we can begin to get our when God, by His power, begins to get our desires in line with God's desires, we begin to see Jesus for who He truly is. I think this is why Jesus starts to want Moses suddenly out of the loop. That's what Moses giving you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law. Jesus is saying, Your hearts aren't in tune with God. You claim to love Moses, you're Jews, you claim to love the Ten Commandments and all that, but you don't keep them. He's saying, Of course you don't accept me, because you don't want God. You don't desire him. You desire to live your own way. And so actually you're going to kill me. And they get a bit up and see. They say, man, you're going mad. Who's trying to kill you? So Jesus can see. He knows where the desire that they can't see it yet, right? They can't see that their heart's set on a trajectory to kill him. They think, oh, I know Jesus. Jesus knows where it's coming. And Jesus says to me, I did one miracle, you're all amazed. And then he does this bit about Moses and circumcision. And he's effectively saying, Look, I'm the, I'm, I'm the one who created the Moses. 
you know, you're, you're circumcised a boy on the eighth day so as to keep the law, even though that's against the law. You've got this thing. But I did a miracle. He's talking about the miracle he did back in chapter 5 on the Sabbath day. And you chuckle your toes out of the And the point is, you're just judging by human appearances. You're judging by what you want. The elephant's in charge. You've got to get in line. You've got to ask God to help you to see things more clearly, to judge correctly. When people reject Jesus, the most, the biggest obstacle is their desire. They just don't want to be with God, and therefore they will not ever, ever see Him for who He is. So will we come humbly? Will we seek an attitude of heart that says, Jesus, I need you? Please, would you help me to see who you truly are? You know, I'm going to stop that. I, I think that's. I, I think there's enough there for us just to kind of chew over. We'll, we'll pick that up again in um, verse 25 next week. I want to just. I want to sit on that for a minute. I want us to feel the weight of what we're being told. Remember to claim. The words of Jesus come from God because Jesus is from God. They carry an authority that no other words could have ever been uttered carry. That's the authority of Jesus. And therefore, we need to adopt a heart attitude that comes to Him and says, Jesus, I, I want to do what I want to do God's work. Where do you find yourself today? Where do you find your desires in charge of your life today? Where do you find yourself careering down a path that you know isn't healthy and you know you shouldn't be going down? Jesus comes to you today and says, My, my precious child, I love you. My words have your authority. My words have love. And if you doubt that, you just need to think a few chapters later in John when Jesus will be hanging dead on a cross because of our evil desires. And Jesus gave his life for us. The words of Jesus carry authority. They carry authority to show us our sins but to save us. And Jesus shows us this because he loves us and because he wants us. So I'm going to suggest that we bow our heads and we pray together. And that perhaps even this afternoon is you sit here in this room or perhaps you're sitting at home wherever you are and you take a moment to say, Jesus, please help me to get my desires in line with you. Please help me to choose to do your will. Help me to see the authority that your work carries. Take a moment of quiet, and then we're going to pray. Jesus says, "Anyone, hear that? Anyone." Not a scripture, but just a use. 
anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak in my own. Father, we're so sorry for all the times when we choose to do our own will. We're so sorry when our desires rule us. We're so sorry when we pursue glory, when we pursue comfort, when we pursue pleasure, when we do that which is selfish. We're so sorry. And we're sorry, therefore, when we fail to see your authority, the beautiful authority that the words of Jesus have to power. Thank you that these words have such power. That 2,000 years after they were spoken, we have a listen to them. And they're still giving life because they're the words that come from you. Lord, we pray that we hear these life-giving words. And we pray that we would humble ourselves and that we would seek to adopt a heart attitude of humility and a genuine desire to know.